and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Future Classics. Hello everybody, I'm Brett Stewart. Joining me on this lovely evening, David Luzader, how are you? I am doing well. I'm on the eve of a 10-hour drive tomorrow. So from packing and preparation, the last of my energy is being summoned to this podcast right now. Very good. We're glad you could make it. Nicole Davis also joining us. It sounds like the last year energy might be summoned for this podcast, too. <laughs> it might. It might. I have to marshal my, my resources for a long drive of my own, but that's not for a couple of days. So <laughs> Very good. Fun. Very good. I have no long drives in the future. Thankfully, uh, actually, that's wrong. I don't. I actually do. I'm going to Milwaukee soon. Never mind. But <laughs> this week was a future classics week. That is where one of us gets the opportunity to pick a movie that they believe will become, in some capacity, a future classic. It has come out in the last decade, so at this point, 2009 and onward. And Nicole, it was her round to pick this time. And before we get into her round, I do want to drop what next week's movie is going to be. Um, so you can follow along if you'd like to and watch it. It's available on Prime and on iTunes and YouTube and all all the usual haunts of rent- rentable videos. And we are going to be watching a 2009 movie uh, that is a British movie. So I'm kinda, yes, oh, I'm kind of I'm kind of <laughs> slipping. I love it's technically Br- around the world. Yes, I love <laughs> British comedy. Too. Yeah, Paddington <laughs> too. Right, he got me. Uh, no, I love British comedy and I love. Uh, this particular film, and I think it is—it's very British. So I, I I feel comfortable making an around the world pick, and it also was a pick that um led to uh we would not have one of the most one of the largest TV phenomenons in the U.S. of the last five years without it. We wouldn't have Veep without it, and that is because we are going to be watching 2009's In the Loop. Um, have either of you seen this before? Yes. Uh, nope. Okay, Nicole it's worth has. it to hear Doctor Who swearing his head off. Yeah, <laughs> this is not a a uh, a movie for children, but it's got like no. Peter Capaldi and James Gandolfini before he died, and and it's it's all about you know British politics colliding with American politics in spectacular, very Veep like fashion. The guy who wrote this movie and directed this movie later created Veep, so you will most certainly see parallels in the way he he like depicts. The, in, the ins and outs of politics. Um, it's a fun one. I'm excited to get into it. But this week, we watched Scott Pilgrim versus The World, came out in 2010, uh, based on Brian Lee O'Malley's Oni Press comic book of the same name. Scott Pilgrim versus The World follows the eponymous slacker rocker on his colorful quest to defeat his dream girl's several, seven evil exes. Nicole, why did you pick Scott Pilgrim as a future classic? Because it's awesome. Uh, <laughs> you, you always ask that ridiculous question, Brett. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was underseen at the time. I think if it came out now, it would be a roaring success. I think it was just mm, ahead of its time. Yeah. Um, playing with superhero tropes, playing with video game tropes. Uh, it's got... Edgar Wright's trademark humor through editing. Um, it's got a very fast pace. You don't even notice how long it is. It's and it's 
It's less than two hours long, but it just goes right by. Uh, it's got great performances. The cast uh, will startle you if you have not seen this movie before. I, <laughs> be like, know. I know those people. <laughs> and um, I don't know, it's, it's funny. It's got good fight choreography. It's just a grand old time. That it is. Oh, my goodness. And I mean... I think I put in our, our show doc that this is like a stomping ground for all those young millennial acting favorites that have now become like perennial favorites of the acting sphere. Um, aside from Michael Sarah, you know, people like Anna Kendrick and Alison Pill and Audrey Plaza and uh, Chris Evans is in here. Like a lot of these people that just pop out of the woodwork in this movie. And I was completely blown away by that. I was not expecting that. Yeah, well, that's that's be- uh, the reason for that is uh, this was Edgar Wright. Sorry, Edgar Wright was coming off of Hot Fuzz at this time, and uh, he wanted to treat this movie much in the same way they did, like Hot Fuzz, where all of the little roles are just filled with, you know, great actors. Uh, it's not just like, oh yeah, we'll just get somebody like get, you know whoever get somebody from central casting to fill in the role. It doesn't really matter. It's they were like really meticulous in how they filled those roles and that's why you get people like chris evans and and brandon routh and may whitman in these not very big roles but they do so much with them in their little bit of time yeah, because I they're love, being uh, based on characters that have like full books sort of around them in the uh comic series i love seeing may whitman in this because i just can't not think about her in arrested development well with- that's with uh, Michael Sarah, <laughs> and that's really like what she was kind of all, all only known for at the time. And I guess you could kind of argue what she's only been known for. But I mean, come on, my Avatar: The Last Airbender crowd, where yet? <laughs> that's right. She played Katara. She does a lot of voice work. I didn't know that. I she went does, and yeah. looked her up, and I was just like, oh, oh, okay. So yeah, you may not see her in a lot, her. but you hear her in a lot. Yeah, yes. like Brie Larson is in this movie as Envy Adams, which I did not even catch. She doesn't even look like Brie Larson in this movie. And no, she's she, baby Brie Larson. She's yeah, she looks like 2010 Brie Larson. All right. Okay. Uh, all <laughs> go, I know is like, up, go look up when Brie Larson had her uh, like pop star phase, man. Man, I I know her best from you know obviously Captain Marvel, but like before that, Room was my big introduction to her. No, you know she had a music career, right? No. Oh, dude, you got to go watch the music <laughs> videos. Uh, you'll get you'll get a minute in on each probably, and then be like, "I'm good." Oh, this is some Hillary Duff territory. All right, we'll get into mm-hmm. that later. Um, yeah, but like, I just love seeing that because you guys had already seen this movie. I know probably numerous times for both of you. So, many and times. Um, this is like my my generation grew up loving this movie, and. I never had seen it. So like I had friends in high school that used to make one line, one liners from this movie that I never got. I had a friend, like one of my biggest high school in jokes was we used to watch Jennifer's body, which I am thinking about terrorizing you guys with at some point. Now they know you've never seen it. And like all my friends would be like, Oh, it's young Neil. And I have no idea who young Neil is until now. Like all of these pieces of being a geek are slowly filling as I see this movie. And that made it incredibly fun for me. Yeah, I mean, if you're, it, it's a movie that's made for geeks, and it's, mm-hmm. you know, from the opening second when it starts with the Universal logo done in like 32 bit with a chiptune version of their, um, of their 
their I don't want to say jingle, but you know the, that, <laughs> the production company jingle yeah. works. Yeah, mobile logo, and it's it's done with you know MIDI level music, and it is just so great to hear that. And it, we want if you're in from there, you're going to have the best time in the world. Mm-hmm. If well, that gets you right off the bat, then the, it's great. It can grow on you if that doesn't appeal to you right away. But yeah. And then they have the the beautiful voice of Bill Hader. Yeah, talking Bill Hader's to voices in here. Uh, uh, yeah, well, the, so that it's uh, the opening scene. Like, yeah, there's like the you know there's the nice little chiptune thing. Then there's the, like a little opening prologue scene, and then the opening credits start. And every time I show somebody this movie, the opening credit sequence starts, and all I can think is, oh no, I've lost them because it's like it's like loud and crazy, and like it's great. It sets like a really great tone for the movie, but it's like I love this movie so much that showing it to someone else i get so like oh no like, they're not gonna like <laughs> this yeah i'm taking like it a personal affront and right at the beginning of the movie there's a lot of um of zelda in particular uh music which shocked me because for those unfamiliar nintendo is notoriously cagey with anything related to their ip i've never ever heard a Nintendo song played in a movie. I mean, maybe like Wreck-It Ralph maybe had something, but I've never have. And David, you were saying that's because Edgar Wright wrote a letter to Nintendo? Yeah, he uh, he wrote a letter saying that it's it's considered to be the nursery rhyme of this generation. Wow. <laughs> he was also allowed to use the Seinfeld theme song. Yeah, like what was that whole well. section? There's I, this I whole section so with a laugh track and the Seinfeld theme that it's so perfect. It's just like, this yeah. weird he, corner he, of three minutes of the movie, then that it's never explained. It just goes away and entirely. And when he, when he turns the burner off on the stove, the laughter stops. Oh, is that that's what stops it? Okay. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So the main theme of this is coming to terms with your partner's former relationships. Obviously, Scott Pilgrim has to do this in a very visceral, fighty way. Uh, <laughs> what's everyone's thoughts on that? Does it do a nice job of of obviously dramatizing and blowing that up into epic proportions? I mean, I think there's there's more than one theme to this movie, but I mean that that strikes me as the biggest one and I was reminded a lot this viewing in particular, I was reminded a lot of Chasing Amy because mm-hmm. that's a major plot point in that movie is the lead guy's inability to deal with his partner's uh romantic and sexual past. And he just can't get over it. And it's, this is something that comes up in Scott Pilgrim where it's, he's not obsessive about it until about like the fourth X when it really starts to wear on him. (laughs) Her, Her past keeps coming up over and over again and he can no longer easily deal with it. Um. And it's just, this is something that I have seen and it's a very weird trait. And I don't know if it skews more male. I'm not going to say that this only happens with men, but I'm going to say that it, it seems like it happens more often with males than with females, that there's this weird possessiveness of the time before you knew your partner and you just sort of want to clear it of previous <laughs> rivals retroactively. Um, 
And it's very frustrating when they can't and they, they get hung up and it can actually cause problems just in their in the relationship as it stands, you know, in present day. Um, so I just thought that this this movie addresses it well. And I mean, you know, the spoilers, but Scott Pilgrim learns to deal with it at the end and kind of grows up a little <laughs> and decides that maybe they can move forward into the future without dragging all this baggage with them. He doesn't. One thing I will say about that is, is he's not really pushy into her past when they first meet and when he's first infatuated by her it kind of gets thrust upon him when someone literally attacks him out of the blue. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right that this is certainly a, a character trait that I, I think you're right. I think guys do this a little bit more where you want to well, kind of push those guys out of the past. Yeah, I think. And also too, um, Brian, the O'Malley, I believe has said, and I know like Edgar Wright, is like they like the idea of like the fights that happen are sort of like their, their fantasies of what's happening as like Scott is dealing with these exes, whether or not they actually like meet in physical space or, you know, it's just unfortunate. Like this is what we're talking about and dealing with now sort of thing. Um, I think there definitely is like an element of, yeah, like getting over your partner's former relationships, but also like a big part of like owning up to your own past as well. Uh, especially like on Scott's side, because when he first starts dating Ramona, there's also him and Knives are still dating. And so there's, you know, he's he's two-timing these girls and they don't know about it. And like at first when that he's confronted with that, he's like, no, 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 I didn't cheat on you with Knives. I cheated on Knives with you. You weren't wronged. But then, <laughs> that, that line... Yeah. Oh, but, uh, he doubled he doubled down in the worst way possible. <laughs> yeah, but then like when he yeah. finally like when he finally owns up to it, he's able to like work through it and and you know, instead of like uh well, uh well, I guess since you caught me, it's like no, now he has to like not when he finally is like, No, here's what happened. It wasn't great. I'm really sorry. Like then good things can happen. Like you can move forward from that. Right. I mean he's in denial when Julie confronts him about it at her party too, where he's She's asking, you know, if he's over envy and he's just like, oh, that's not a thing. You know, she's like, don't hit on Ramona before you, you know, destroy another life. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. She's like, that thing with Holly, that wasn't what it looked like. That thing with so-and-so. It's totally misunderstood. Uh, One of those, and I'm going to try not to talk too much about the comics, but one of those is a reference to a character that comes up in the comics uh, for a (laughs) while. Um, And there's a there's another moment with that. This is actually I did want to mention the comics for a moment because I think this there's a couple points where the movie uh, adds some extra dialogue that I really like, mm-hmm. uh, like in that sequence. So the first like half hour is largely the first book. Like a lot of the I was rereading the first book after watching this movie, and a lot of the dialogue is picked just right out of there. Uh, and the scene where Stephen Stills says. Uh, to Julie, like, oh, Scott's mourning period is officially over. He's dating a high schooler now. And Julie says, dating a high schooler is the mourning period. Uh, is not a line from the comic. That's only in the movie. And I think that is such a great line. Uh, I absolutely totally perfect. I absolutely adore the whole running joke of his <laughs> of his fake high school girlfriend. Because <laughs> um, it's just like this. It's like the epitome of the awkward rebound relationship for the guy that's just old enough to maybe date the high school student and not have it be 
Eh, I it's, actually don't know. It's, it's weird. Still pretty creepy. It's still Though pretty it, weird. If it makes everybody feel better, in real life, Ellen Wong is three years older than Michael Sarah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the thing, the only thing that saves it from being just like, uh, you know, mildly creepy, what, what keeps it in just mildly creepy rather than just plain icky is that it's like this completely chaste relationship. Oh, yeah. It's completely like surface level. And whenever anybody brings up like sex, it's like, no, 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 no. No, like, we, there's have, like, we almost held hands once, yeah, but then she, she got embarrassed. I think she hugged me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they play more like Dance Dance Revolution than anything throughout yeah, that the, weird the short span game. of their relationship. Yeah, the weird ninja game that just keeps coming up. Um, additionally, this is about owning up to your own mistakes. You know, one of the things that, you know, I think is a theme that I think David's getting at here as well with this discussion topic is not only is it coming to terms with your partner's home relationships, but it's also like Scott earning his self-respect at the end of the movie and finally coming to terms with how he wronged people and owning that and not letting people literally fight over his mistakes. Yeah. Well, and you also, you can't do stuff for other, like, I mean, there's some stuff you do for other people. Sure. But like, you know, like when he first goes to fight Gideon for Ramona, he loses. But once he goes to fight Gideon like for himself, he has like the resolve to do that. Like he's able to overcome and kick Jason Schwartzman's ass. Right. Can we talk How about Jason Schwartzman for a moment? Um, for an hour, yes. So, so he's like the <laughs> he shows up in this movie, and I was like, oh, I didn't know he could be in movies that weren't Wes Anderson movies. And um, I don't know if that was like a contractual obligation. And he shows up and steals the show for me. Um, his induction into this movie is beyond bonkers, and I just adore him in this movie. Yeah, so we're going to get into uh, how closely I followed the production of this movie, uh, which was <laughs> incredibly closely, because Edgar Wright did a photo of the day blog. Here's when this... Let's put some cultural context into when this movie was being made. His photo of the day blog started on MySpace, uh, and he but also posts some production videos every now and then. And one of the ones they posted was towards the end of filming uh, when Jason Schwartzman came on and he, they were just talking about how like a breath of fresh air it was because they had been just like worn down and of filming. And Jason Schwartzman like came on late into production and it was just like, he said that he had, he had so much energy, just like Tigger. And I think that really like comes through kind of when everybody's been like worn down by like the fighting and what's been going on. You have, you know, him playing like th- there's a scene when he's fighting Scott and they like they haven't said anything for a while and they just like kind of come really close together and he just looks at him and goes, Hey, <laughs> with just like this charisma that I love. Yeah, it's this very smarmy charisma. <laughs> you know, this is a guy who owns a, a record company and nightclubs and he's a producer and he's he's just got that forceful yet slightly repulsive charm if that makes any sense <laughs> yeah and he does you know he's got these mannerisms where he's chewing gum all the time and uh being very flip and and friendly and yet passive aggressive with his friendliness yeah and tossing his head all the time to the point where i i watched some of the bloopers and about Half of them are Jason Schwartzman's glasses flying off when he whips his head back to look at people. Oh, those, <laughs> those glasses. And, and Ramona, when she talks about like, oh, he's this visionary that, you know, 
people like people want to follow basically a lot of times in movies when that happens you're like yeah okay sure whatever but like i with jason schwartzman i bought it like the way that he acted the way that he was i'm like this would be like a guy that would be on the cutting edge of everything and he would be setting the next trends and all of that and he's so self-assured oh yeah and that can carry people along i mean we you know for a bonus episode we watched those documentaries about the fire festival and the guy who you know, came up with that idea. It was a lunacy. And yet he pulled, you know, dozens and dozens of people in his wake trying to bowl through and make it happen, even when it was not possible. The difference is that Gideon would pull it off. There would be a music show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Kanye would have been smarter to pick the right venue in the first place. Right, exactly. Yeah, and, and he does like... He he's on a literal throne at the end of this movie. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> with uh, <laughs> with um, with Ramona, kind of like in the. It's like it's kind of like a Jabba and at his oh, feet. Totally, it's a hundred percent Jabba with Princess Leia. Yeah, yeah. because she and she also has the thing around her neck, which we learn is a mind, not even mind control, but just makes her infatuated with him. Um, which makes sense, <laughs> uh, because th- that's what threw me initially when she gets in the car with him. Because this is toward the end of the movie when Scott has successfully fought off six of these of these evil exes, and and then she just gets in the car with Jason Schwartzman and rides off and says we're done. And that really threw me for a loop until I figured out that he was in some way controlling her. I like that. I thought it was cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Again, like you, you can look at this movie in a lot of ways. Of like, she like this is just the one that she can't get over. She can't move past, and she like she says she can't help herself around him. Like, is the <laughs> microchip metaphorical? But then again, there's also a Bollywood fight scene. So really, I don't think you can take anything in this movie uh, too seriously. Yeah, that Bollywood fight scene is the first evil X. And I was thinking about this because I was thinking, you know, if this is all these metaphorical fights with. Scott Pilgrim trying to come to terms with the fact that she's had ex-boyfriends, that she's had ex-boyfriends that were cooler than him, or at least he believes they are. Um, I was trying to think through the seven of like what they had on him that would make him uh, very like self-conscious about himself. And that was one I wasn't sure about because like Lucas Lee, who is um, Chris Evans, like we know that. We know that wonderfully by Chris. Chris I can't wait to get to that. Uh, But he's like the cool. He's the cool Hollywood guy. Then you have um, the vegan guy who's like big and buff. Brandon Rouse. Right. Todd Todd Ingram. And then we have Roxy. I'm I think I know what makes Roxy better. (laughs) It's kind of confusing to me. It was only a phase. Yeah. Yeah, And in in the books, she's a half ninja. Okay. And yeah. then Kyle and Ken Katayanana, Kata, Katanagi. Katayanagi, they're much better musicians than he is, much more celebrated. And then, of course, Gideon. And they're is, twins. And they're twins. <laughs> and then, of course, Gideon is, you know, this is, is uh, what, what do they call him? The G-Man throughout the entire movie? Yeah. yeah. He's the G-Man. He's got all the right things going for him. So I'm not sure what that first one, what Matthew Patel has on him that makes him self-conscious about himself. Uh, I mean, he's the first one. I, he you dances know. Bollywood. He, yeah, he's got demon hipster chicks. Uh, not. I mean, I always v- viewed Matthew as like Matthew is the one that really seeks him out. 
Uh, I mean, Roxy, I guess, does as well, but she's like a ninja. The, the other ones, he kind of like stumbles across at different points where Matthew like makes a big splash to come to him. You know, maybe that that's a good point. Maybe he's not necessarily self-conscious about himself when looking and comparing himself to Matthew, but Matthew is the one that like stomps in and then she says to him, I dated him for like a week in sixth right. grade or something like that. Why does this guy comment on all of your Facebook posts? Uh, <laughs> yes. we dated him. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's like that's the what he the kind of ex he is. No, that's a good point. That's a really good point. I think that's probably it. Yeah, well, it's so, not like he comes in without warning. He's the one who sends the email. The email. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Scott just ign- I skimmed it. You know. Right. <laughs> Didn't hey. actually read. It was a challenge to the death. Yeah. David, when it's are these movies? The when are these movies mm-hmm. supposed to take place? When? Yeah. Uh. I don't think they ever really like say in the comic. They started like, coming out, started coming out in the like two thousands. Because everything feels really contemporary about it, and then there's like an overly long gag about him learning how a computer works with like dial up. Well, I mean, they're they're incredibly poor, and in Canada, which we all know is <laughs> your tragically Canadian senses. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to say I have the I happen to have the first volume just right here. I'm trying to see if I can see when the first one, first edition, came out. Uh, in 2012 no that's can't be right 2004 is when the okay. first one came out so right, early right. 2000s you can, you can have dial up in, in 2004 i'll buy that yeah yeah. Well, yeah and i mean yeah and like i said they're poor right right right, right. uh by the way his roommate um i'm blanking on the name right now help me uh, out wallace wells wallace wells what a roommate kieran uh, culkin man he's great what i love him Wait. so much no please no <laughs> is he legitimately related yeah he's 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 all he's in home alone Viewers can't see my face right now. The entire yeah. movie, I was like, he looks a lot like Macaulay Culkin. Oh, yeah, because it's yeah, Macaulay Culkin. They're brothers. Brother. Yeah. Oh, my God. My mind has been blown. Yeah, him, Macaulay Culkin, <laughs> Rory Culkin is now in There's more three of them? at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what mythical beasts. All right. That's fantastic. Yeah. I love it. I, I've I've always been because this movie ha, has was kind of a launching point. Not I mean not the movie itself, but like it put a lot of people who are already on a really strong path like further a little bit ahead. And I always hoped that Kieran Culkin would be showing up in a lot more. And I'm a little disappointed he is not. Not that he's not no, been I'm working, so but not that you know he's not in the the limelight as much as I think someone of that talent should be. Wow, fascinating. Right. No, I no, love he's him got in this. such great timing. He's got this wonderful, dry delivery of all his lines. I mean, he's given great lines to deliver, but yeah. I, well, he also adds his own touches. Like, there's one where he comes stumbling in drunk one night and goes, Guess who's drunk? You yeah. Know? Like, I'm guessing as well as, and he flips his keys that, and they whack Scott, Scott directly yep. in the head. There's, As he's falling into bed, he's sort of, he has this like he, he. I mean, you can tell he cares about Scott, but he has like this sort of detachment yeah. from the whole situation. Like he doesn't want right. to be that involved in Scott's young love life. It's uh, a very emotionally healthy detachment from. Scott's oh yes, life. though yes. at the same time, he is absolutely that friend. Where when Scott is ready to make the jump, that's totally not good for him. He's like, yeah, you should probably jump. Like he is that kind of friend that's like, you should totally go fight that Hollywood superstar that's buff and bigger than you. Um, uh, his whole thing with Lucas Lee, but my one of my, my look out is that one guy. Yeah, look out, it's that one guy. One of my favorite lines from uh, Wallace Wells is when Roxy and and Ramona are fighting, 
<laughs> he just goes, kick her in the balls. <laughs> every time I see this movie is hilarious. So the visual flair of this movie and, and looking like a comic book is something that did really blow my mind because Marvel. So I'll, I'll talk about Marvel for a brief second because they're the, the comic book Titan in our, in film over the last decade. And um, when I watch Marvel movies, I'm like, wow, this is a really great interpretation of a comic. I don't feel like I'm watching a comic. I felt like that during Into the Spider-Verse, and that was very much intentional on their behalf. But this was, I think, maybe the first time I've watched a movie based on a graphic novel that pulled in so many aspects of what the medium feels like to read. Mm -hmm. That really was impressive to me. Like All the music has the visual component to it whatever anybody's playing on an instrument that i love right and not only does it have that it has you know these these wonderful like it has the wham bam pows kind of here and there on screen when people get hit and it has the really quirky fun character introductions where it freeze frames for a brief second and kind of tells you you know what they're all about like the one guy who just knows everybody 25 year old guy who knows everybody um and all these character oh uh, yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> all these character introductions and uh and all of these visually visually eclectic stylings, like when we are introduced to Matthew, and Matthew like flies in out of nowhere when Scott's performing in a theater, and it just turns into like this scene out of Kill Bill. It's so bizarre, and it feels like you're reading a comic book. And I I don't know how to put my finger it, on why. It, well, partly because of the love and care that Edgar Wright put into it. I mean, there are scenes shots in this movie that you can go to the comic uh, so throughout the seven graphic novels and just point and be like that is the exact shot like the scene when he stalks her uh, at the party um right. there's like five or six quick shots but that is like those that is like five or six panels and all of the shots are composed exactly how the panels were set up uh and as the movie goes along it it, it story-wise is not following quite as strictly uh, to the comic, but there's still just like a lot of little inspirations. Like when he's in the elevator at the end and it's going down, it has that giant arrow to it. Like that is straight out of the seventh graphic novel. Yeah. And I think also part of it is, you know, when he has his conversations with his sister played by Anna Kendrick, who we don't actually see off of a phone until very late in the movie. Um, she's always this person that he calls up on the phone and the screen m moves over and her frame pops up next to his frame. Even that sort of cinematography and editing in particular makes it feel like you're jumping between frames of a comic book. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And there's also a lot of love given to video games and anime. Um, you know, particularly in the fights, you get all the video game tropes of, uh, you know, KO. Yeah. 64 hit combo. <laughs> Right. And that, yeah, all the counts of, of the number of blows they get in are combo, you know, but the, as the characters come flying in like anime characters where you get slow-mo and there's this pose in midair. Right. And yeah. there's this wonderful behind the scenes footage of people on trampolines in <laughs> blue screen rooms, just trying to get the pose frozen yeah. correctly so that they can get it on camera and have it to you know match the background in and it's you know so when matthew patel comes flying in with his fist cocked and straight directly through the hole in the wall that's you know that was him on a trampoline yeah love it. getting the pose just so you know and they're on wires half the time it's it's 
great fun to watch all the behind the scenes footage for this. I bet. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. I think for me, for the first time seeing it especially is I didn't know quite the lengths of Zany it was willing to go to, um, which that was really fun. Like, I, I think my favorite takedown of one of these seven evil exes is most certainly the like the vegan when he defeats him after getting his ass kicked for a long period of time by tricking him to have half and half. <laughs> and, and then the vegan police, you know, jump in seemingly out of nowhere, like out of a science fiction novel. They come out of portals and they have these really elaborate no, they have a car. Sci- Do they have a car? They have a car. Oh, I thought they drive there. Everything happens so fast. <laughs> yeah. But the, their laser guns are in their fingertips. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm vegan, thinking of. So like, they have special powers. Right. So they have like special powers and they can take away his vegan powers, but also apparently like the veganizing Ray. Right. And, and it's Thomas Jane and Clifton Collins show. Right. Yeah. And it's it, First Clifton you were a Collins. Vegan. No, by name. I looked at Clifton Collins, is to me, is. That guy who was on the headset in Pacific Rim. Yep. <laughs> That's exactly how I think of him half the time. He's too. in Westworld a lot also. Oh, he's also, yes, he's also in Westworld. Yeah. And that was the scene for me where I was so, I was already into this movie from the moment it started. As Nicole said, if that opening sequence, you know, rings true for you, you're going to love this whole movie. But <laughs> seeing him first base fight that guy uh, and then defeat him via the vegan police that was just so far into yeah. this hole of bizarre absurdity that I was so excited to be going down because I feel like this movie, not, I feel like there's a lot of movies that try to do that and then come off kitschy and fail. Well, like and I love that- yoga hosers. I realize it's not a good movie. Oh no, it's awful. Uh, and and that, that scene also is one of the best gags. I think when you see uh, through the holes, like the, the, you know, the different holes, you see a floating, uh, Todd Ingram, and you think like, oh, he's going to come floating through it, and then he just comes through the door, <laughs> right. <laughs> right next to it. Uh, it's no, it, it totally could have been cheesy and and not good, but you have like a really distinct visual style that's consistent throughout the movie. Uh, really, everything is really well timed. You have every like actors that are giving it their all. It's just like there is just so much. That was put 100% was put into this movie by everybody involved, and that keeps it from ever being like, oh, guys, isn't this really silly, right? This is really goofy and dumb. Yeah, absolutely. It also doesn't doesn't pander to the audience in that regard. Right. It doesn't wink at you. Whereas, like, things like Yoko Hosers totally do. Like, oh, look, we made zombies out of Bratwurst. Yeah. Bratzies, I can't remember what they're called. Um, it's been a while since I saw that movie. Uh, so this movie takes seven graphic novels worth of material and packs it all into one two-hour movie. Does it succeed at telling a cohesive and compelling story at its breakneck speed, or does it overload the or or does the overload of material weigh it down? I didn't realize this was seven novels till I looked it up after the movie. <laughs> for what that's worth, I think it runs okay. along at a very brisk pace and kept me compelled the entire way throughout. Yeah, I'm I'm torn as to whether I would want it longer or not, you know, because I think the you get shorted a little bit on like the twins' backstory. There's like there's literally no backstory to them. They just show up and do a music battle with the other right. band. Right. Yeah, that's true. Um so but if you make it the pacing's already 
pushed to the limit when you get to the finale with Gideon. You're all you're already there's already been so many fights and so many uh you know, realizations that he's supposed to be making and stories from Ramona's past and stories from Scott's past. And you're just like, all right, okay, let's wrap it up, you know, by the, yeah. by the end of it. Yeah. I, I definitely, I don't think I'd want seven individual movies. I mean, oh, in goodness. a perfect world, in a perfect world. Yes. Give me that. Well, I think, <laughs> I mean, I think in, in this day and age, it would be or a series. Yeah, exactly. Like it would be a, uh, a, a limited run series that, I mean, I don't know. You could, you could, I think you'd even cut it down. It doesn't have to be seven seasons because the, the graphic novels aren't incredible, that incredibly long. Um, they move at a pretty good pace themselves. I think like in a perfect world, two movies could have given you some time to grow out some of these characters a little bit more. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff with uh, knives. They didn't get to like knives becomes her own person in a big way uh, right. with, with Steven stills. There's a bunch of stuff they don't get to. Um, some of these exes have pretty interesting backstories and interplay with Ramona that maybe that could have maybe fleshed out even her character a bit. Well, uh, yeah, the biggest omission is Scott's relationship with Kim Pine. Yes, though that though that uh, is, that whole story gets shorted. Though I mean, if you have the the DVD or the Blu-ray, I think they have the short that uh, talks about that a bit. But I mean, he even has a really great conversation with her about his about their relationship in the comics that helps him grow up a bit that i think if you had two movies you could have had time for that to be in there yeah first of all i'm glad you mentioned the name steven stills because i just love that they decided to name a character directly after you know a very famous rock and roll artist sure and they almost name another one after him it's young neil rather than neil young but right right (laughs) um which those two play together so clearly some influence there. Um, one thing I did want to say, though, is that this happens a lot in video games. So it's not surprising to me that it's a plot device of this movie. Um, the whole idea of like to get to the completion of whatever this narrative is, you must complete seven of this is a very mm-hmm. video game thing. You know, I remember going back to the first Assassin's Creed back in the day. And the thing that threw me off that game was you have to do this thing and kill this person in nine cities. Uh, and you had to go to worst. every single city and do the same thing. And it just took forever. And I maybe second fight in, I was apprehensive because I was thinking to myself, this is great. I love it. The fights are exciting and they're intuitively designed and they're, it's just a thrilling movie to watch. But is it going to be too much with seven of these? And it wasn't. They they handle it well enough where I almost forgot that I had gotten through seven by the end of it. Um, but I think that if you make this movie longer, you run into that territory, in which case maybe it has that. to turn into two movies. But I think the way it stands, it does a great job of circumnavigating the typical issue I would have with that whole like one, two, three, four, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Well, and I think too, what helps keep these fights from getting too boring is each one has their own flavor and style to it. Uh, which Edgar Wright said that he viewed this movie as a musical, but instead of breaking into song, they break into fights and in the uh, song sometimes. Yeah. And occasionally into song. Uh, but I think like the fact that he doesn't really defeat Lucas Lee, like there's a brief fight, but Lucas Lee is defeated by, uh, himself. by himself, by grinding down a rail, uh, you know, Todd doesn't, like, Todd gets depowered and like their fight is more of the base fight than like a really like, like punch up fight. 
the fact there's like variety to it, I think also helps that from being just like, okay, it's the same thing. Oh, he's going to fight another guy. Great. Okay. He's going to, yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. It keeps it from getting too repetitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, you know, I mentioned Kill Bill earlier, but I did, it felt a little Kill Bill in the sense for me that when, when you watch Kill Bill, you know, there are several very specific people who are coming for the main character, the bride, and you'll see her off them one after another. And, um, and you know, that's the end game of the movie. She must off each of these people in order to succeed at the end. And, uh, and that was broken technically in the two movies. And that was very successful in that. But even also in regard to the fight scenes, where when I think about Kill Bill fights, I think about very specific individual fight scenes. I had very uh, razor sharp ideas of what the aesthetic of that fight was going to be. And, uh, and I feel, I feel there's a parallel there. Am I crazy? No. Okay. No, I, no, I think uh, there, I I mean, Tarantino even had direct influence on this film. um, From from what I understand, Uh, where they, they, he, Edgar Wright had had a conversation with Tarantino about, uh, originally the film had a, uh, only had a title card at the beginning. It was Quentin Tarantino who suggested to Edgar Wright late in stage of post-production there should be a pre-title credit sequence. Otherwise, the remaining ensemble of characters yet to be introduced would have been introduced in a much more rapid succession. The audience might have been overwhelmed with the introduction of characters and plot. With a pre-title sequence, the audience is given a chance to relax and have a f- firmer grasp on the beginning of the film. Wright considered this and agreed, liking the idea, and uh, the first scene would now be a prologue. Oh, cool. Gotta love Tarantino. Uh, so the method of defeating Roxy Richter, she's straight out of a Tarantino <laughs> movie, if there ever was a lead out of a Tarantino movie. Well, no, because it wasn't a foot. It wasn't a foot oh, that he had to touch. Oh, God. <laughs> Don't get me started. Yeah, so yeah. defeating her is touching the back of her knee. Touching her erogenous zone, right? Right, right. Her erogenous zone. Yeah. And so she has an orgasm so powerful she <laughs> It kills her. Which is there any other way you'd want to go, honestly? Yeah, but I mean this is you know, it's it's amusing, but this is the one yeah, PowerPoint in the movie for me. Because she is, is defeated in battle in the comics. And here she's, once Scott actually fights her, it's not a battle. It's suddenly a sexual thing. And that really bothers me. And I'm frankly disappointed in Edgar Wright for going through with it that way. It seems like it's partly a play on the fact that it's like, it's like a, it's like a, a huge reminder to Scott of like, these two had sex, you know, because like he even says, like, you went through a sexy phase um, when he finds out that she had, um, you know, a girlfriend at some point. But I almost feel like making her like sexualized in the fight is part of like reminding Scott and making him uncomfortable by the fact that they were intimate. I, I agree. It's it's not a it's not a great scene, but I think that might be part of it. No. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think it's 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 a situation of like, how can we make this defeat different than the other ones where we can just punch her and beat her? Uh, that kind of got away from them in a in a negative way. Though I do yeah, they, like it, it might have been trying to fight against the discomfort of oh, I don't want this. You know, Mae Whitman is a very small woman. She's very short. Mm-hmm. Um, and to uh, I it it might be you know in large part to avoid the visual of 
a larger man beating on this smaller woman um, and defeating her physically. But I, I really wish they had found another way to do it because I just don't like it that her, her defeat has to become this sexual thing. Yeah, which and, and which is disappointing because it's a really great fight leading up to that when she fights Ramona yeah, and then when Ramona, Ramona fights. Why can't Ramona take her out? Because know, it's with, a league like, fight. But with like a, a last minute assist from Scott or something. You yeah, know? I, I love the part when she's like behind Scott using him to fight her because those are the rules of the fight. Like it's, it's a very creative sequence up and yeah. And then yeah, I well, well I did like that a lot because yeah, it played on him not wanting to punch a girl, right? Um, right. Yeah. Although it, because she's working him like those, I had the these great uh, boxing nun puppets once as a kid, where it's just I gotta see know, these you, things. You, you move the little levers and the nuns punch each other. They have little boxing gloves on. Uh, and he and Ramona's kind of doing that with Scott's fists and his feet, and uh, you know it's great to actually be able to see. Mary Elizabeth Winstead fight because she's really good at it. They all trained, you know, it's like oh, yeah. only two of these people had made action movies before and nobody else had, certainly nobody else would have cast Jason Schwartzman in a martial arts fight of any kind <laughs> and prior to this movie. <laughs> yeah. And there are scenes where you can tell like, Oh, that's not, that's not a stunt double doing that fight scene. That is Michael Sarah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's, but Mary Elizabeth Winstead did a lot of her own fighting oh, yeah. work. That, and that she big old is, kick is her. Yeah. It's, I mean, do you know how hard it is to kick that high, especially in boots like that? I was very <laughs> impressed. She, she, and she looks incredibly graceful doing it as well. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So what I does. I've got a big old crush on her. What does Ramona? Well, I mean, fl- why wouldn't you? You know, yeah. <laughs> with the giant anime eyes and yeah. the beautiful hair. Oh God! I mean, I know right. that hair is a wig, but I, yeah, it's like, I, mean, I wish I could get that color blue. Oh my and God! And she'd be destroying her scalp, you know. Yes, she would. Which is what you, is what you do in your early twenties. Yeah. Well, no, I'm doing it now in my mid forties. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's, that's I'm on blue thing. right now. It was purple before. I've had little hits of like pink and, <laughs> and red and purple before and green. Nice. So it just kind of makes me want to run to my bathroom and bleach it all out and start over again with the many tubes of Pravana I have in my cabinets. <laughs> so what does... Uh, I'm not going to... Anyway. What does Ramona Flowers see in Scott? Because, I mean, it, uh, there's, a, there's the obvious cliche of she's a bad girl and she needs a goody two shoes to make her life ordinary again there's there's it's deeper than that i think yeah no i think i mean scott is a he's kind of a he's a little bit of an awkward but he's got like this kind of confidence about him you know like he does awkward things but he's never like oh i'm so weird and quirky uh what you think he's a I'm so weird and quirky kind of guy? He does introduce himself by slowly, like moving away, saying, "I'll never speak to you again for the rest of your life." After but, awkwardly talking well, to her about Pac Man, yeah, that that they have a horribly awkward uh, first interaction. But he's not like, "Oh, I dropped the thing. I'm so bumbling." No, I know a lot he, of people like that. He's awkward he's 
he's self-assured about the wrong things if that makes any sense you know like he's super smug about dating a high schooler and particularly that she's chinese and particularly that she goes to catholic school and has the uniform and everything no when he's talking no when he's talking to stacy and she pulls that out he i, I don't think he has pride in that 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 is shame uh, that the way he's talking to her that is like yeah, and it's all this stuff as well. Like, like yes, like, <laughs> I, like I'm feeding into this fantasy, and I, it's not good. I reckon. yeah, but he doesn't realize it until he's having that discussion with her. When he's talking to Stephen Stills, it's like, ooh, nice, you know. That's front of your. You want to seem cool in front of your friends. Well, yeah, but you know, he thinks the wrong things are cool. I, I don't know. It's just this is this is a guy that I would have met and said. Oh, okay. He's one of these guys. He's like <laughs> borderline douche, but doesn't realize it. And just like, I don't need that in my life. Oh, and he's so not, I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's kind of vaguely cute, but he's not, you know, arresting looking enough for that to make up for his being confident in the wrong things and awkward and weird. Yeah, I never get that he's like borderline douche. I mean, yeah, like I mean, obviously this is coming from their relationship in the comics, which is much more fleshed out. They have much more like yes. time to talk and and interact, and has a much bigger personality. Uh, but I mean, and that's I think that's but, kind I of mean, a, a. I see what Knives sees in him, but I don't see what Ramona sees in him. Uh, because he's a nice guy. That's I mean that's. Yeah. But that, he's that, not that nice. Nicer, in contrast to the seven right, previous. Compared to I, all the other guys. Yes, in contrast, yeah. I well, <laughs> The things you're describing, Nicole, make me think, like, is Scott Pilgrim a better Michael Sarah than Michael Sarah? Because <laughs> all of these things you're describing are Michael Sarah in every Michael Sarah movie ever. And it seems like Scott Pilgrim is kind of the epitome of Michael Sarah. If you guys well, get what I mean, I'm saying. I remember I, I read the books. I read the books before the movie, and I was as I was reading them, I'm like, you know, who would be perfect casting for this guy? Michael Sarah. And apparently, you know, Edgar Wright thought so too, because like five years before when they were doing pre-production, they're like, wow, you know, that guy on Arrested Development would be great, but he's too young. <laughs> and he finally aged into the role, you know, when it was finally time to be able to actually shoot the thing. Mm-hmm. And then most recently, he's de-aged back into that same role. <laughs> it's weird. Uh, the whole Arrested Development Season 5 thing, rocky territory. Uh, so the film's original ending had him getting back together with Knives, his fake high school girlfriend. But they later changed it to match the last graphic novel that came out during production, where he goes off with Ramona instead. Which ending better fits the movie? Uh, I meant to send this to you, Brett, for you to watch it, but they actually filmed the ending really? where he gets together with knives. Yeah, oh, and it's yeah. on it's on the uh, Blu-ray and all that. Mm. I kind of like that he goes off with her. I feel like they both need a fresh start after all this crap. I, I kind of I agree with you, but I think within the context of the movie, it does make sense how he would end up back with knives. Like I think for this yeah. movie, it's. Their, their characters have much better interplay and chemistry than he does with uh, with Ramona in the film. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I I agree that I think it would be emotionally healthier for him to end up with knives because they're <laughs> more on the same maturity level. And Ramona really needs to go have some time by herself instead of hopping from relationship to relationship and not really being. It, it seems like she's not happy being alone. Right, and she right. needs to learn to be happy with herself, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But within the context of the movie, you know, it's it's the way Knives puts it in the end in the the theatrical yeah. version, where she says, you know, she's the one you've been fighting for right. all it's this time. Plus, I'm too cool for you. So. Uh, yeah, which which is also something they kind of lift from the comics. But like by the time that that happens, it's great because they do have a moment of like. Oh, let's like let's you know now we're both older and we've matured and you know he he's not with Ramona at the time and they actually like make out but then it's just like oh no we're really terrible for each other and this is not good. I do love that Knives turns out not being creepy because she has that streak in, in the movie in the mid part of the movie where she's stalking. Oh, him. she's like stalking. Oh, she's yeah, <laughs> and, and I'm so, so glad that she comes out the other side of that being the most emotionally mature person at the end of the movie. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm glad that Ellen Wong has, is having some success with Glow currently, and I hope it continues oh my for God, her. She's, she's great. In she's oh, in Glow. Oh yeah. my God, that's her? Yeah, you guys didn't realize that was, well, I mean, Nicole, you didn't no. realize that was her? Yeah. I, did. I totally oh didn't. I thought here. that the last thing I saw her in was The Void. No, <laughs> she's she's in both seasons of Glow. Oh, that's awesome. All righty. Wow. Fantastic. I'm just sitting here with my mind blown. Quietly. Right, right. Now, despite <laughs> extremely positive reviews and endorsements, it was a box office bomb. There's a few reasons oh, why. so disappointing. David, it sounds like you immediately have some thoughts on, on why this was a bomb. Yeah, so it made... People 40, are stupid. It, <laughs> the, so it made $47 million on a budget of uh, somewhere to 60 to $90 million, depending on sources. Uh this movie, like they really tried to generate some some buzz for it, uh, so they did all of these pre screenings, which was great. But the problem is they did too many pre screenings, where I think they got to a point where their built in audience uh, had already seen the movie by the time that it came out. And on top of that, the real damning thing was that this came out the exact same day as The Expendables. I think if it had had its own weekend it would have done much better but everybody in this movie at the time this came out except for michael Sarah, was kind of not really a super well-known quantity anna kendrick at the time was only in the twilight movies uh mary elizabeth winstead had been in stuff it wasn't like a huge name we didn't have captain america uh chris evans yet uh brandon routh had been superman once and then no more like you have people now but now he has like a great tv career now you you know i think if this movie had come out now as we talked about like aubrey plaza not a known thing all these people who are super well known for all these different things like it would have been like oh man look at all these great people in the movie versus like back then when it's like ah it's sylvester stallone and all those guys you love from the 80s movies yeah so i was about to ask was was the expendables a runaway success (laughs) i don't remember it being that oh yeah he made three of them. Oh my god! I remember it being really bad, but I guess if you have that oh, big of an bad. ensemble I cast, I didn't say it was good. I didn't say it was good. I just said they made. Oh, apparently they're making a fourth one as well, oh, and no. then the Expendables, the the female version. Who do they it, add they, to a fourth ex- one? Who is there? I don't know. Is the Jason Expendables Statham made two hundred and seventy 
Yeah, two hundred seventy-five million dollars is how much the Expendables made versus Scott Pilgrim's forty-seven million. So, question here: I'm going to take us down a very brief rabbit hole. Is Jason's statement? He's the only person. Like, he's like a modern-day Expendable territory, right? Is he already in them? Uh, I don't know. I oh damn it, he I is. So. Yes, he is. He's in the first one. Yeah, he is. Oh, he's he's yeah. He's been in all three. Okay. Then I have no idea where they're going with that. All righty. Um, thank you for that brief digression. Yeah, I mean, it shocks me that this was okay. It doesn't shock me because it does feel very niche in the marketing. Because that's what I read. I looked at some of the posters and I watched the trailer and and I read a couple of very long oh, Reddit threads where. A lot of people made the argument that this was not well marketed, that this didn't convey what it was supposed to convey to get people in the seats. I disagree. I think it was well marketed, which is on because it told you exactly what the movie was, and that wasn't appealing to, I think, a number of people. Uh, uh, yeah, not a lot of middle America, not a lot of people over 50, you know, want to go see it you know nerd culture hadn't fully taken over yet so yeah. post mcu runaway success years this would have been a hit today right this would have been ready player one level today in fact that's probably a good analog i know it's i know this is i think this is a better movie than ready hopefully player one. better than ready i think player i think one. it would have been it would have been more well received i do want to i i do want to say uh one thing that guillermo, guillermo del toro loves this movie and yes he's uh, good Brett, I apologize. You're going to have to beat me here, but uh, he he. I think he signed like somebody had him sign a copy of Scott Pilgrim versus the World, the Blu-ray, and what he wrote on there is anybody who doesn't like this movie is a mother. <laughs> I love Guillermo del Toro. I love him so much. Yeah. Um, yeah, if this movie came out today, it would be, I think, a hit. Yeah, I think you're right because you yeah. know I was thinking about it the other day, and my my fiance has a 16 year old. Uh, younger sister and and so i'm kind of like witnessing and also she's a she's a high school teacher so i have a lot of insights i think into these the young ones and one thing i'm noticing (laughs) the kids you're so damn old right right because i'm like because i'm like five because i'm like five to nine years older than these kids um yeah but these kids and their dank memes (laughs) their dank memes but one thing i am noticing that was not even really a thing when i was in high school from you know 2010 to 2014 was um you were still kind of ostracized if you were super into the marvel movies or something like that and now this is like the jock kids go and and the the emo kids go and the popular kids go and the unpopular kids go like it has become so ubiquitous with movie culture that it's like you go to see these movies because they're awesome no matter who you are and and that's that's the same for star wars and and the MCU especially. And I think that that's the kind of climate that this could have thrived in now. Oh yeah, absolutely. Cause like you have a movie like spider verse where people are like, Oh, it's a breath of fresh air in this climate. And if this movie, I think could come out now, it would have that sort of same attitude of like, Oh, it's bright and vibrant and exciting and fun. And it's not your typical superhero fair. Uh, and it's where- Canadian. So you don't have to worry about politics. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's, it's very, it's, tragically canadian uh i I think yeah this would be embraced very positively uh if it came out today interesting why for being different i think i think you might be describing what we'll see not this weekend but the following weekend listeners will have already seen it uh shazam 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 is getting that similar praise where people are saying that i i saw one reviewer saying it was you know dc's 
D, a, a, the best outing of a DC character since Christopher Reeves. That is such a breath, breath of fresh air because it harnesses what's so childlike, innocent, and fun about being a superhero. Um, wow, it's rocking like a oh, 90, yeah, no. it's rocking it like a ninety five percent on Rotten Tomatoes. This thing is like going to be. It a looks hit. terrible to me. <laughs> oh no, I'm so excited. Oh, it's currently got it. Yeah, it's got a ninety two percent, seventy seven okay. reviews counted. Yeah, yeah, that's. Oh, well. But but that that's kind of the thing, right? We'll you see, have to break the mold enough. We'll see. We'll report back when we've seen it. Uh, a couple yeah. other very brief discussion topics before we wrap up: the numbers and the X's. David, can you kind of explain to me what you're meaning here? So I don't just mean the X's like her ex boyfriends. I mean, like there are X's. Like so, the numbers. All the uh, ex boyfriends have numbers related to them. Uh, Lucas Lee has a tattoo that looks kind of like a two on his neck. Uh, Todd Ingram is wearing a giant three. You see a four just before he fights uh, Roxy. Uh, when they like when they explode or turn into coins, like their point values relate to their number. Uh, but also, all throughout the movies are are these X's. Um, like visually, uh, like there's a, a crisscross in the snow or like swing sets that are crossed into an X. Uh, and my favorite one is there is a scene where they are uh, Ramona and Scott are riding on a bus and all of the lights in the background of Scott's side are turning into hearts. Uh, and all of the lights and the background of Ramona's side are turning into X's. That's cool. I've never, I didn't catch that at all. That reminds me that I promise it's not a spoiler. No spoilers here, but um, I, I saw us last weekend. I know Nicole did as well. I don't know if you did David. Um, I haven't seen it yet. No. Number 11 all over that movie. Way yeah. more than I thought it was when I saw the screen caps later on and what they meant and where it was. Um, that's that's a cool little trick. I love that. Yeah, that's just, just something people. If you've seen the movie, or if you haven't seen the movie, just keep an eye out for for the visual X's or the numbers. Just fun little things to pick up. Yeah, I had picked up the numbers more this time. You know, there's like a two on Lucas Lee's trailer and on his car mm-hmm. and on various other things that. There's an X patch on Scott's jacket that's like yeah. straight out of the X Men. It's the X Men logo X. Yeah, and he it's tears it off at one point. Right. Oh, and Scott Scott's always drinking Coke Zero because he is X Zero. Uh, yeah, nothing yeah. the cry ever spilled Coke over. Um, that's not to mention that Coke Zero was delicious at that was, point. It was the it's rage. Okay, now, but it was much better. Than <laughs> what has the formula of Coke Zero changed? They yes. all change, Brett. Nothing stays the same. <laughs> Nothing stays the same. So the Marvel connections and the one DC one, this is another kind of least drag that I, I don't know if I caught. And I caught some Marvel references, but I don't know if I caught the one DC well, one. Uh, I mean, the connections, uh, you have Captain America, you right, have right. Captain Marvel, you have uh, Aubrey Plaza is in um, uh, Legion. Uh, that's right. Legion was thing. Okay. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to remember who else has been. A lot of people Camo, have been a lot of things. Camo plays the medical examiner in Captain Marvel. That's correct, yeah. Um, uh, Brandon Routh was Brandon in Routh Superman was, Returns. And, he's yeah, the, and, and, he's and now he's the Adam. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just like it's all these people. Connection. Yeah, that, all these people. That makes sense to me because you're going to, if you're going to be invested in this project, and I know that, there are actors who might contest this opinion, and I'm sure there are actors who don't care a lot about whatever property they're in, and they're good enough actors where they can get in it and sell it and move on. Um, I think you have to love being a geek to sell this movie 
and to sell your character in this movie. Oh yeah. Which means you're going yeah, to run I in those circles of casting. I mean, before, but you know, before we wrap up here, I just, we got to take a second to talk about Chris Evans. Oh, in the movie. It's so glorious. Chris, Chris Evans is, <laughs> those eyebrows. Amazing. The way that he says, when I feel like getting blazed in my Winnie. Yes. <laughs> Inspired. I, I love his, his skater company tattoo that he has on his chest. Um, yes. And of course, he's like, well, do you skate? Of course I skate. Is, you know? Yeah. Apparently, that's a Tibetan number two. Uh, oh, oh, there you go. <laughs> how, how deep does the rabbit hole go? <laughs> oh, it's great. Um, no, he is... Sorry, the crew cut and the, the exquisitely manicured facial hair and... Yeah. But that that gravelly voice that he affects is just the best. Yeah. Oh, you didn't you know about the league? Ah, no, no hard feelings, bro. <laughs> yeah, right. He's so great. He is yeah. pretty awesome. And also, I looked I looked at photos of him in the comic, or or rather, you know, art of him in the comic, and they kind of nailed it with casting. Yeah. Well, um, and really, I mean, he is he is barely in the comic. Uh, He's like one of the he's one of the exes that has like almost no real time. Uh, he just kind of shows up, does his grind, dies, and that's the end. And I just in the movie they gave him so much fun stuff to play around with that I, I love it. Okay, so did you guys see all of his movie posters in the movie? They are the best. They are the best. Are, <laughs> there's kiss there's, me, I'm dying. Yeah, kiss me, I'm dying. <laughs> Thrilled just to be here. You just don't exist. Um, <laughs> trying to find the other ones in here. The, action doctor, line, action doctor. Let's hope there's the a line. The, the line that he says, uh, <laughs> Cole, Cole Hazard just got a call saying he was he had 89 minutes to live from himself. Uh, the line <laughs> he says in the fake movie they show is so perfect. <laughs> you're gonna hear two, the next click you're gonna hear is me hanging up the phone, but after that is me pulling the trigger. Oh, the <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so kiss me i'm dying is is one of the you know the the header catchers for, <laughs> yeah, for this but a, another one is check your pulse another one is spencer J is awesome you're welcome i assume that's his character's name <laughs> uh <sighs> they're glorious well, i mean it's no wonder that wallace wells wants to have his adopted babies yeah yeah right, <laughs> right. no uh he's fantastic i love him um, and that's and that is the 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 stunt doubles are um are Chris Evans's real stunt doubles. That's his stunt team. Some of them are. Some of well, them. Yeah. I think I mean, the, they, they added a couple. One of them is actually the the fight trainer for the movie. Oh, cool. So, but yeah, I mean they've they had, I mean they had some serious fight choreographers on this film. They brought the in like people who've worked with Jackie so Chan. Great. The fight scenes are amazing. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, he's my favorite of the uh, of the exes, followed closely by the G Man. The G Man is so yeah. So this great. was my future classic. So obviously, I love it. Obviously, David loves it. <laughs> yes, but I love it with the caveat that it will be a cult classic. I embrace that. Yeah, no, it's. I don't think it's going to be seen as it's going to be taken as seriously, even in like Edgar Wright's body of work. I don't think it's going to be taken as seriously as say, um, baby driver or Shaun of the dead. Yeah, absolutely. No, I a hundred percent agree. 
Yeah, yeah. This was a huge learning experience for me as somebody, again, who grew up surrounded by people who loved and referenced this movie nonstop. Um, I totally ran in the circles that would have seen this movie early. And, and, and I totally get it. I totally get it. This movie was so much fun and it's so different than anything I've ever seen and does it so superbly well that I also understand not only why all my friends love this growing up, but also why uh, my local, you know, indie movie theater shows this once every two months or so. Um, now I'll have to oh, go wow. sometime. It's, it's definitely yes, here in Chicago. There's definitely a fan base for that, obviously. So yeah. I love it. This is Alamo's on a couple movie parties. I need to go to. Those. Yeah, this is a cult music class, a cult, a cult classic through and through. I absolutely adored it. So thank you, Nicole. Oh, you're welcome. So uh, again, next week we're going to be watching In the Loop. If you want to see the Doctor swear like a sailor, you will have the opportunity to do so. Uh, oh, so creative! He gets very creative with those swears. Like you will totally understand that this is the man who later wrote and created Veep. Like this is this this is Veep 1.0, and Veep is Veep 2.0. Um, Actually, no, the thick of it is Veep. Ve- right, right. I should specify that if you end up liking In the Loop or you're interested to learn more about it, then seeing In the Thick of It's probably worth it. That is the movie. That's a sorry, the TV series that this movie's based on. Um, that it draws characters from Peter Capaldi's character included. So uh, it makes you think: Why would they cast this man <laughs> in a pinnacle children's role? After previously being in this, they still made the right call. He was great. Uh, but we'll watch that next week in the loop. I'll do it for myself, David, Nicole. Nicole, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd, uh, Nicole underscore Davis. And you can find me taking care of our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast. And you, David. Uh, people can find me on the Brokeback Mountain podcast as well as around the internet under the username Davluz. That is D-A-V-L-U-Z. So Twitter and Instagram, find me there. Very good. You can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. You can find the socials of all the, the people that just named them off and also the show socials over on uh, social.mgrpodcast.com. You can also email the show hi at mgrpodcast.com. We would love to hear from you. You can rate the show on iTunes and Stitcher. We would so appreciate if you do that, especially the former. We want to get more votes in there. We want to get more people in the door. Our most recent round of You Did This To Us saw the most votes we've ever seen before. We would love to keep that community growing. Our numbers are totally reflecting that. So reflect it in the reviews, guys. Come on, take five minutes. Even if you don't have an iPhone, you can do it on the iTunes app. But again, we'll see you next week with In the Loop. <laughs>